If you've had a perfect week this past week, go ahead and raise your hand. All right. If you know the perfect one, Jesus Christ, go ahead and raise your hand. Very good, very good. want to make sure you're awake. I know many of us, well, all of us lost some sleep last night. Um, if you don't know this about your pastor, I am a sound sleeper. When I was a young boy, my parents uh, got me out of bed on Christmas Eve and tried on the roller skates that they had got me the next day for Christmas, and they worked fine, put them back in the box, and I didn't know I was getting roller skates the next day. So I can sleep through anything, literally anything. And so this morning, uh, I, I hate to admit this, but I was so tired, stayed up a little bit too late last night, lost an hour of sleep, and my alarm clock is on my left-hand side, um, the way I laid down, but for some reason... Um, I thought my wife, Sheena's head, was my alarm clock. So uh, I, I hit her head. Thankfully, I didn't slam the alarm clock. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> so I so, uh, hope you're more awake than I am this morning. Well, we are back in Exodus. Brother Justin did a great job taking us out of Exodus into Philippians. But we're back in Exodus for just two more weeks. We're going to try to get through Exodus in two weeks. We're going to look at Exodus 32 this morning, just one chapter, and then next week we're going to look at eight chapters. So that's going to be quite a, uh, a feat to go through that many chapters. But as we look at Exodus chapter 32 this morning, in your Bible it's probably titled, again, these, these titles aren't inspired, they're not inerrant, but they're helpful to kind of give us a summary as to what we're about to read. And your, your, your chapter 32 is probably titled The Golden Calf. Now that description might sound like something out of Aesop's fables or some other collection of stories, but I want to remind you, again I say this often, that this story is true. And so everything in it is true and it will bring more light to us today than you might think. So let us stand. We're going to read the whole chapter even though it's lengthy as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought with a graving tool. I'm sorry. They brought the uh, rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, 
These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. And Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. He threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. When Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you may, blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, 
I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Amen. You may be seated. Gracious Father, we ask, Lord, that you might give us understanding as we read your word. Lord, I pray that we will not think about the sins of society or even the sins of our neighbors, but Father, let us take stock of our own hearts. Lord, I pray that we will seek to repent. Lord, we see that you give us an opportunity to repent. You are patient and gracious and merciful. So Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you will teach us your ways. Lord, I pray that my words will honor and glorify you. Lord, lead us as your people. Make us more like Christ. Draw people unto yourself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to give you the three points right off the bat. doesn't mean every sermon has to have three points. as a little disclaimer. But right off the bat, we're going to divide this chapter into three sections. And first, verses 1 through 14, we must recognize how quickly we run to idols. Again, don't see this as, man, Aaron, the Israelites, how foolish can they be? Because it is kind of comical how foolish they are. But again, we must see our own idols. Verses 15 through 29, we see the folly, the stupidity of idolatry, and there's an opportunity always to turn to the Lord. And then last but not least, while there is judgment, we cannot do away with judgment. While there is judgment, verses 30 through 35, we are rejoicing in the mercy for the, the Israelites, for their journey ahead, remember at the end there, it says that the angel would go before them, God would go before them. He's not leaving his people. This is mercy for them, and there's mercy for us in the days ahead. So, um, as we begin this chapter, again, Moses is coming down from the mountain. What, why was he up on top of the mountain? Anybody? Joseph? Why was Moses up, up on top of that mountain? What was he getting? Ten Commandments, that's right. Moses, my front row pupil. Doing a great job, buddy. Alright, look at the, look at chapter 31, verse 18. As we look backwards, the last verse of chapter 31, it says, He, that is God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So literally, Moses had a mountaintop experience. He's up there with God, receiving the Ten Commandments of God, and as Moses makes his descent, the people down below are plotting. Again, as Moses is away, you know, what's the saying? Is the, uh, there you go, Mike said it for me. Cats away, the mice will play. And so again, Moses is up there on the mountain, and now Aaron and the people are there, they're plotting, they're constructing a plan that is contrary to God's plan. So instead of trusting in God's plan, again, instead of trusting in God's word, literally, the word that was written on the tablets, they decide to take things into their own hands. They come to Aaron with impatience in their heart and an idol that's being formed closely behind. And what do they say? What what does the scripture say? Feel free to follow along um, throughout this chapter. I know there's a lot to go through, but what does the scripture say? They say, make us gods who shall go before us. God was just going before them. It's the chapters previous to that, and they said, we need gods. And as for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come of him. 
It's like, what? I mean, he was just there. I mean, Moses was just there. That didn't take long. They even recognized Moses was the man who had rescued them, took them out of the land of Egypt. What was the land of Egypt? Uh, what was that notorious for? Slavery. Oppression. Moses led you out of that. He led you out of the, out of that. And now you say, where's Moses? And they're like, well, he's on unsolved mysteries. We don't know what happened to him. It's like, you know where he's at. So brothers and sisters, let me take a moment here of personal application. You and I are tempted to doubt God. You and I are tempted to think, where is God? You and I are tempted to say, God's timing, his plan is not matching up with my plan. Well, whose plan needs to adjust? So we are tempted to do that. Let me warn you not to do that. We must trust in God's timing. We must trust in God who is our king. But here, the Israelites not only forget what Moses has done for them, they forget about Moses himself. So Aaron seizes the opportunity. Well, I was not number one. Now this is my time to shine. He's now the new ringleader. His leadership skills are lacking to say the least. He's worse than a prosperity uh, teacher on TBN or CBN, whatever it's called. Um, and Aaron here is worse than a prosperity televangelist in that he's collecting the gold earrings from among the people. Where did they get the gold? God had provided it from it. God had provided it from when they plundered the people. But now Aaron's saying, give me your gold. Take off your earrings. I want all your gold. And he immediately goes along with his plan. He carefully molds the metal. He uses his tool. He uses his talents that God had given him. God had given him for dishonesty and idolatry. He turns the gold into a golden calf. And in case you think Aaron simply made a mistake or that this was a Pinterest project gone wrong, we read the words of the people. This is not an accident. They know what they're doing. We read the words of the people. They, they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Truth for a lie. This sounds like Romans chapter 1. Look at Romans 1 with me. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Idolatry is always foolish. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Is there another slide? Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. So again, this is what's going on. They're exchanging the truth that they have for a lie. They're worshiping their creation instead of the Creator. Aaron knows what he's done, but his heart's not satisfied. He doesn't just build the calf and say, well, that was neat. No, he knows what he's doing. His heart's not satisfied. He wants a God to act on his behalf. And so look at what happens in verse 5. In verse 5, he builds an altar. Again, these are religious people. They know what they're doing. He builds an altar before the Lord. He makes his proclamation saying, Tomorrow we shall feast. There shall be a feast to the Lord. Are they worshiping the Lord? No. It was not the Lord that they are worshiping. They rose early. They offer burnt offerings, peace offerings before their God. 
And it says the people were pleased with themselves. It's like they're patting themselves on the back. Wow, look at what I've done. And it says that they sat down to eat, to drink, and to play. And I had wondered about this, and another commentator kind of confirmed this, but some say that the, the actions described in verse 6 may have sexual overtones. This shouldn't surprise us that when you worship things you create, you will begin to sin in other ways by distorting and misusing the gifts that God has made. And so again, they're, they're having a blast. They're celebrating. They're feasting. They're dancing. They're worshiping even. We all worship, but they are worshiping the wrong thing. But God is not going to be mocked from above. The Lord tells Moses to hurry down the mountain because the people who he led out of Egypt were no longer obeying the commands he had given. And look with me in verse 7. They're no longer obeying the commands. The Lord tells them, go down because the people have corrupted themselves. People know what they have done. Or Moses knows what, what they have done. They ignored Moses, and as a result, they have ignored their maker. God tells Moses what the people have done, and God says, they have quickly turned aside from my commands. They have made a golden calf, they sacrifice to it, and they worship it. So again, they quickly run from the truth. It doesn't take long for us to quickly run to idols. Idols are counterfeit gods. Our idols may not be golden calves. I mean, some of you might be thinking, how could they worship a calf? I mean, I love to eat steak. Why would they do such a thing? But that's not what this is about. We can, we can worship our own different types of idols. Our own different types of idols will lead us down destructive paths, whether it be money, approval from friends or your spouse. Don't you know that Aaron just wanted the approval of the Israelites? He said, you know, I want their approval, crave their approval, another type of God. We can crave uh, idols from work, from sports, from sex, or reputation, rejection, even education. Two big idols that I've been learning a lot about in my own life is the idols of comfort and control. Let me give us some x-ray questions. These are from David Powelson. As we examine our hearts, we must examine our thoughts as well. Where do you take refuge? These are some, some questions that kind of stimulate what we serve or who we serve. Who do you serve? What do you place your trust in? What do you set your hopes on? And then who is your savior, your judge, controller, provider, and protector in the world? These will help us analyze what or who we are serving. Timothy Keller divines idolatry this way. He says, it's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so this is what we often do when we are craving an idol. There's many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but again, the best way to describe it is worship. We all are worshiping something or someone. The Israelites were looking for security, but in the end, their longings reveal their idolatry. And whenever we start worshiping an idol, we do two things. 
We forget who God is, and we forget what God has done. So they have forgot who God is, forgot what God has done, and they worship the creation instead of the Creator. The Psalms, many places, Isaiah, Jeremiah, speak of this idolatry. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, look at the foolishness of idols. Psalm 115, it says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. I mean, how are you going to have a, a uh, conversation with an idol? Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Idolatry is foolishness. Idols are weak, they are worthless, and they waste your time. I mean, I didn't put one of the biggest idols on here, probably because it steps on my toes, and that's the idolatry of social media. I mean, there's been times like, wow, where did, where did that hour go? Where, where did the time go? Was that productive? And I don't want to go too off in the wrong direction here because all things can be profitable and redeemable, but it's so easy for us to find our identity in other things. And so idols, I want to remind us, are weak, they're worthless, and they waste our time. God sees the idolatry of the Israelites. He's all-knowing. He's not caught off guard. He's, you know, he's not um, awakened by Moses. Moses doesn't nudge God and say, do you see what your people are doing? God knows. He's not going to be mocked. He sees the people, and what does he call them? Stiff-necked people. That is what they are. Stiff-necked, stubborn, and hard-headed. I remember uh, my dad saying on a time, son, are you listening? Are you hard-headed? So I think he only said that once, though. But we can easily become hard-headed, or what we would say here about the Israelites, that they're hard-hearted. This past week, I don't know if it was Monday or Tuesday, but you know how when you sleep on the pillow the wrong way or you toss in the middle of the night and you get that crick in your neck? The whole day, you just you don't even want to check the blind spot as you change lanes. You're just hoping the car's not there. You know, it's just, it's so painful to even move your neck because of how, how stiff your neck is. So you and I can become stiff necked. Well, how did the Israelites become stiff necked? They forgot the truth. They resist the truth. And they seek to do things their way, even when it hurt. But we see in this passage that God is not going to say, okay, a little idolatry is okay. You know, I, I would have made the calf this way, but that's fine. No, God is not going to share his glory with another. God is jealous for his own namesake. I started to write a, a big paragraph or big part about God's jealousy. We'll have to talk about that another time. But God is jealous for his own namesake, which reminds us that, again, there are no other gods like God. No other gods compare with God. And that's why he says this in verse 10. Look with me in verse 10. He says, God says, Therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. God is getting Moses' attention. He says, This is no small thing. So God reveals his wrath and he's angry with the people. Why? Why is he angry? Because they've rebelled against him. 
This is comparable to what we read in Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48 says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain, restrain it for you, that I may cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is not going to be mocked. He's not going to share center stage. He's not going to share His glory with another because there is only one God. So He's getting the attention of Moses. And Moses realized the seriousness of the situation. So Moses, in verse 11, he turns the tables in the discussion. He pleads with the Lord to remember His promises. What does Moses pray? Look at Moses' prayer. I love this prayer. Moses prays with confidence. He prays with boldness. And Moses, he says, Lord, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He tells God, these are, these, these are, these are your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. So what is Moses doing? First of all, he's saying, God, these are your people. These are the people you rescued. These are people you redeemed. These are the people you brought out of Egypt. These are the people that you showed that you love and cherish with your great power, with your mighty hand. And now you're going to eliminate them? So Moses isn't playing games with God. He's praying according to God's plan. He's calling upon God according to God's character and God's covenant that he's made with his people. So Moses basically says, the Egyptians, remember the Egyptians who saw who you were? They're going to question your character, thinking that you had evil in store for them. They're going to take them out of Egypt only to eliminate them? They're going to question that. The people of Egypt saw what God did. Remember the the magicians? The magicians acknowledged this is the finger of God. Remember the Egyptians? They saw that this is the power of God. It was unmistakable. It was remarkable and it was undeniable. So now Moses pleads with the Lord God. He's basically saying, why, why would you nullify your power? Why would you do this? So Moses calls upon the Lord not to consume Israel. He pleads on behalf of the people to not pour out disaster. So that why? So that why? So that others might see God's faithfulness to his people. Moses wants everyone to see his faithfulness to his people. So he pleads to God because of his character and because of the covenant he made with the children of Israel. Moses is basically saying, God... Why would you go back on your promises? Why would you do that? You made a promise. You made a covenant with your people. Why would you go back on your promises? So as we read this section, again, we can make a whole sermon about this section about prayer. I want to encourage you. I want to remind you that as you pray, pray with boldness and pray according to God's word. Pray knowing that God has good plans for his children. And we see as Moses prays, he prays according to God's faithfulness as outlined in Scripture. We're not going to turn here this morning, but look at Numbers 14, 13 through 19 as a way to pray. And then in verse 14, it's remarkable. What What does it say? Verse 14. It says, 
the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Did God change his mind? No. God was using Moses. He was using his prayer to accomplish his plans from the beginning. So this is an amazing, remarkable spot here as God responds to Moses' prayer. He hears him and he uses his prayer. Listen to what Spurgeon says about prayer. Spurgeon says, In God's word we are over and over again commanded to pray. God's institutions are not folly. Can I believe that the infinitely wise God has ordained for me an exercise that is ineffective and is no more than child's play? Does he tell me to pray, and yet does prayer have no more of a result than if I whistled to the wind or sang to a grove of trees? What is Spurgeon saying? Spurgeon is saying that God has given us prayer for a reason. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is about us knowing God. It's not about us getting our way. It's about knowing God. As we pray, we pray the words of God and we pray the will of God. Okay, that was introduction. Now, moving on to verse 15. The second section, verse 15, we see the folly of idolatry and an opportunity, an opportunity to turn to the Lord. Verses 15 through 29, now things get intense. Moses has seen, he's heard of what's going on, and he's coming down the mountain. He has the tablets in his hand. These are not iPads. But he has the tablets in his hand. These are very, very valuable. These are the words and the work of God. And Joshua tells him there is noise down below. Joshua had gone halfway up. He was waiting for Moses. Moses comes down. They meet together and Joshua says, there's noise down there. doesn't take long. They don't realize what's going on at first. It doesn't take long that the people are singing, dancing, and rejoicing. Well... Could be three things. Could be, well, it could be a lot of things. Maybe they're rejoicing because there's victory. Maybe they're mourning because there's defeat. Maybe they are worshiping an idol. Ding, ding, ding. They are worshiping an idol. These songs are not joyful songs. They are songs of self-exaltation. They're not praising God. I don't want you to get the wrong message here. Dancing is not wrong. But dancing that does not honor the Lord is. Dancing here caused immorality and idolatry. So what does Moses do? It says Moses, as Moses approaches the camp, the text says his anger burned hot. He was furious. George Jones talks about being hotter than a $2 pistol. I think Moses is hotter than a vinyl car seat in the middle of summer. He is furious. He is furious. Why? Because there is idolatry. Because there is sin. Because they are ignoring the words of God. So Moses is rightfully angered. He throws the tablets from his hands and they break when they hit the ground. Moses is not throwing a temper tantrum. Moses uh, is upset and he's disgusted and he's not rebuked by the Lord because the the Israelites had created an idol. What does Moses do with the idol? He eliminates it. I mean, he pulverizes it. I mean, he doesn't play around. He burns it, grounds it into powder, then he scatters it on the water nearby. This is one of those ones that's you know you don't see in the children's picture storybook Bible. 
you know, they don't show this scene. Then he makes the people drink from the water to show that they have defiled themselves. You want to create an idol? Drink up. Drink from your desecration. Drink from the things that you have done. Moses then confronts Aaron about the sins of the people. Aaron knew better. He was their leader, yet he's leading them to sin. So Aaron, what does Aaron say in response to Moses' question? Look with me in verses 22 and 23. Moses says, What did the people do to you that you have brought such a sin upon them? Moses calls it what it is. They have sinned. Why? What what happened, Aaron? What's Aaron say? He shifts the blame. He shifts the blame. Just like Adam in the garden, Aaron shifts the blame onto someone else. What does he say? You, Aaron, you know the people. You, you know these people. They're always bent on evil. They ordered me to make them gods, um, to serve them, because they did not, that, you know, they didn't know what had happened to you. And I didn't know what had happened to you. We didn't have, we couldn't track your phone. No, you know, they didn't, they don't, they don't know what happened to you, Aaron, or to you, Moses. So again, we see here Aaron shifting the blame. He acts like all that's going on is no big deal. He essentially tells Moses, okay, don't be upset, little brother. You know how these people are. They're bent on evil. In other words, why are you getting so mad? What's the big deal? Then Aaron continues like a child caught in a lie in verse 24. He says, I told them to take their gold and give it to me. Then I threw it in the fire, and lo and behold, Moses, you're not going to believe this. I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. That's the story, and I'm sticking to it. I mean, you're like, are you for real, Aaron? That's the best you could come up with? He blames the situation on the fire. First he blames the people, then he blames the fire. Again, this would be hilarious if it wasn't such a serious situation. What I want us to see here, I'm making a little bit light of Aaron's response, but I want us to see the seriousness of the situation that we cannot, we cannot cover up our sin. I've tried. I'm sure you've tried. How does that work out for you? Not very well. We can't cover up our sin. We must, we must confess it. Moses sees what's going on. He isn't fooled. In verse 25, we see that sin leads to chaos. Now there's chaos going on. In the midst of the chaos, Moses says, okay, fine, Aaron's not going to tell me the truth. I mean, and he's going to ignore the situation. He's going to blame shift. Everybody's worshiping idols. So he stands up in the midst of the people and he says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. Moses is a leader. He speaks truthfully, he speaks boldly, and he speaks clearly. He says, who's on the Lord's side? Now is the time to repent and turn to the Lord. Lord. What happens in verse 26? The sons of Levi, they gather around Moses. They choose to follow the Lord. Then in verses 27 through 29, we read of both judgment and mercy. Judgment upon those who follow their idolatrous passions and mercy upon the sons of Levi. 
Don't look past this. I don't want to ignore the hard passages of Scripture. It said that 3,000 people died as a consequence to the idol that they worshipped. It's not a small thing. This teaches us three things. Sin is serious. God is holy. And God is to be honored and obeyed. Sin is serious. God is holy. And God is to be honored and obeyed. So this is what the Levites do. They obey the Lord with their sword and as servants. Now, I know you might be thinking, or maybe you would have, maybe you're sitting here reading to this and you're thinking, okay, well, I believe it because it's in God's Word, but Pastor Steve, if I was trying to describe this passion, this passage with a friend, they would laugh at me. They would mock me. They would ignore me because they wouldn't have this for a second. So this is why we must remember God's Word in, in the proper text, in the context, and in the overarching themes of Scripture. I think Tony Marita helps us to understand this, that we must remember, especially in this time, especially in this place, that leaving idolaters in the land would threaten the preservation of the truth and the salvation of future generations. Basically, he's saying, if we just let this go unpunished, we're saying idolatry is fine. We're saying we can worship other things. We're saying God and whatever is okay. But we can't say that. Marita says we would um, threaten the salvation of future generation. If idolatry continued to exist, many would never have the opportunity to obtain eternal life through Jesus. Jews and Gentiles would be both eternally affected by the continuation of Israel's idolatry. So again, idolatry is no small thing. Sin is no small thing. So we see here in this passage, we must flee from idolatry and cling to the one who cleanses us from our sin. This is the last section. The last section, verses 30 through 35. There is mercy for the journey ahead. This last section points us to mercy. Moses, a true leader, he speaks up with boldness and truthfulness, and he not only speaks to the people truthfully, he is ready to go to bat for them. He's ready to lay himself down. He says, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Wow. What did Moses do? Now, he was a sinner. He did have anger issues. He did do other things we'll talk about in, in the weeks ahead. But here, he had done nothing wrong, and now he's ready to take the blame. So again, we see two key truths from this, from this verse. First, again, sin is serious. Sinning must not be mistaken as small stuff. You must not minimize your own sin. Moses rightly assesses the seriousness of sin. What does he call the sin? He calls it great or grave. Sin will lead us to our graves. Number two, sin requires atonement. Someone must pay for sin. You can't just say, well, we'll just sweep it under the rug. Someone must pay for sin. So Moses tries to do just that. Moses says, I'll lose my life for the sake of Israel. Moses understands the, the importance of salvation and he understands there must be a substitute. But there's a game changer here. There's a change here. In the past, the, the high priest, the high priest came with a substitute. What does Moses do now? Moses says, I'll do it. I will be the substitute. 
So we have a change here from I'll offer a sacrifice to now I will be the sacrifice. In your mind, you should be, you know, clear as picture. Jesus! Moses is pointing us to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. We see here, this is pointing us to the one who's to come. We need a substitute. Not just a bull, not just a goat. We need a lamb, the perfect lamb, the lamb of God to take away our sin. So here, Philip Ryken says that God is willing to let someone die for someone else's sin. But the only sacrifice he can accept is a perfect sacrifice unstained by sin. So Moses could not do it. He came close, perhaps closer than any man who had ever come, but he still couldn't make atonement for sin. So God responds to Moses' requests. God again shows judgment and mercy. God promises to lead the people despite the fact that they were sinners too and that there would be judgment upon those who persisted in their sin. God's presence will continue with his people, as we see in the last two verses, 34 and 35. But again, there is mercy for the Israelites. He says, my angel shall go before you. God continues with his people, with his children. So there's mercy for the Israelites in the journey ahead, and there's mercy for you and I. As I close, I want to point out Again, that you and I need a perfect substitute. One of my favorite chapters in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is a wonderful picture of the perfect substitute. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect substitute. He is the one who came to do the will of the Father. He fulfills the plans of the Father. He is the great high priest who offers his body as the perfect, unrepeatable sacrifice. And Hebrews 10 says it was accepted. It was accepted by God, and by it the people of God are sanctified. And through it, there is forgiveness of sins. That is beautiful. And by nature of the new covenant, the people of God are new creations who not only know the laws of the Lord, but they're able to obey wholeheartedly. So through Jesus Christ, there is hope. Through Jesus Christ, there is mercy. So as we, as I recap quickly, we went through this chapter quickly, believe it or not, but as I recap, recap, golden calf, but it reveals more than that. It reveals the idols of our own heart, deep down in the crevices. So that's one of, the, one of my goals this morning was to reveal idols of our hearts. But I also have another goal. Sometimes pastors, preachers are good at analyzing the problems. But I want to give you hope for the future as well. As you see idols, don't just do what I do sometimes and exchange them one idol for another. Like, oh, I got rid of that idol. Now let me go to the store and buy another one. You know, now let me get another one. And so don't just exchange one idol for another idol. The hope that we have is by seeing and savoring the grace that's found through Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we have, to fuel the flames of our hearts with the grace that's found through Jesus Christ, the mercy that we have, that you and I have a Savior. Salvation is possible. Isn't that right, Win? Amen. He gives me the thumbs up. So 
If you're united to Christ, you have hope. If you know Christ, find your refuge in God. If you know Christ, fear God. What did Aaron fear? What will the people say? That's what I fear. What will my neighbor say? What will so-and-so say? If you know God, fear him. And if you know Christ, trust him. Trust him. People of Israel could trust God. He had already led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of oppression. And if you know Christ, here is the, the biggest theme. Love God. That is the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love. Why? Why do we love? Because Christ first loved us. That's the biggest motivator that can fuel our hearts with right affections, right worship, as we worship the only true God. The cure to removing idols from your heart is not found inside of us. It's not trying to find more resources. It's not trying to get more education. It's not trying to change our location. We must remove what is inside of us because we want to rule us. We want to be the ruler of us. But instead, turn to Jesus. He is the true ruler. He is the king. This is why we say Jesus is Savior and Lord. Amen. Let us pray.